This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we talk theater with two exceptional storytellers. They are the co-founders of Indian Inc. Theater Company, New Zealand's most successful and original theater company, which has been producing world-class, award-winning theater since 1997. They are critically acclaimed for their epic stories, amazing acting, music, humor, and puppetry, all focused on tales of humanity, heart, and serious laughter. Coming up, we unmask the creative process of the dynamic theatrical duo of Jacob Brejin and Justin Lewis. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. I know you're used to the spotlights and fanfare, so ta-da. <laughs> Please, you, Pat. That was lovely. Well, thank you. First of all, let's give people context. I'm talking to you in two parts of the world, so tell me where you each are located. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, on tour. I just got here a couple of days ago, and we're actually opening tonight. So the crew are up there putting the stage and the lights in, and I'll have to go off at some stage and do a dress rehearsal. That's the voice of Jacob. I'm establishing the characters of this play. Inter Justin. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, where at the early hours of the morning, where I think it's some other time for you guys, and I'm just holding the fort back here while Jake's off in the real world. You're actually in the future, aren't you, Jeff? You're tomorrow. Yeah, that's right. I think we're going to need some tips on horse race winnings. <laughs> He's just out in front of us enough. We could maybe clean up. Honestly, travel is just the weirdest thing when you come to America because we, we arrive two hours before we left. Oh, that's very interesting. So wait, are you late for doing the show each night or are you early? Possibly. I don't know. <laughs> My stage manager gets me there. I just cough and go and walk on. So you don't respond to the clock. You respond to 10 minutes to places. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm definitely that kind of actor, useless. Uh, wait, did you just say useless? <laughs> yeah. In terms of the logistics side side of stuff, I, I just get shuffled around an airport. I'm pathetic. We once had the musician and I got separated from the tour manager. We entered a lift in an airport and got completely lost. We went on the wrong floor. It, it was like the head was cut off. And this, <laughs> the, these chickens were wandering around unguided. You're describing the artist brain. So now let me ask Justin a question. This is why you have a good partnership, right? Are you organized? Well, I'm organized on a, on a meta level, not so much on a micro level. Ask me to find a piece of paper or a file, forget it. But if you want me to give you a plan, I'll give you plans for Africa. I'm the big picture guy. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. All partnerships do require some different skill sets. Let me explain to the audience, because I'm not sure they're familiar with Indian Ink Theatre Company, but you have been creating extraordinary stories in New Zealand. And in many cases, Jacob, you were at the center of those as the actor playing multiple characters. And you use every element of theater. You use costume and puppetry and mask and sound design, lighting, character development, all of this is thought of as you're going. And I saw on your website a mission statement that talks about you both focusing on serious laughter. So I'd like you to enlighten me a little bit about that mission statement and what you're trying to create. 
Serious laughter is a way of thinking about using laughter to open the audience's mouths and then to kind of slip a serious message in. So Jacob's naturally got funny bones and that really comes out in the work and laughter is just such a great way to entertain and bring an audience in. But just laughter on its own is a little bit too sweet, you know, it's like too much um, candy floss. Do you have candy floss in the States? You know, like it's just spun sugar. Okay, yeah, yeah, we call it cotton candy. Cotton candy. You need a bit of nourishment as well. So the idea of the serious laugh is to have a bit of nourishment to go alongside the, the sweetness of the cotton candy. All right, so the cotton candy is wrapped around some kind of steak. Yeah, <laughs> or, or maybe it's some sort of vegan yeah. steak alternative. I don't know. <laughs> Nowadays, yeah. I met you both many, many years ago at an arts conference in Arizona, I think, and Jacob was showcasing a work I think it was Krishnan's Dairy that I saw maybe as little as 20 minutes of, but the details of the sound effects of the little doorbell when somebody walked into the dairy where there was no scenic element other than a counter, as I recall. And all of it is a journey of imagination, but also the fact that you're mask work, Jacob, and your character work is so strong that I saw a multi-character show with one person quickly changing masks and changing costume or changing some small element or even just using a small gesture. And I'm fascinated by your ability to play multiple characters. And aside from the thought that you're putting eight other actors out of work sometimes, the question is, how do you begin to define those characters for yourself so that the audience can see them and you can make those changes so quickly? Indian Ink was founded on a love of mask. Both Justin and I, we kind of met coincidentally while working on another project. Justin wasn't even supposed to be on the project. He came in as a sort of emergency stage manager. I happened to be using mask in this show. And we got to talking afterwards and found that we had a common kind of lineage in that Justin trained with a guy called John Bolton who ran a theatre school in Melbourne called the John Bolton Theatre School. This is, this is possibly a very long and meandering story, but bear with me. John Bolton is a disciple of Jacques Lecoq. Jacques Lecoq, of course, is the founder of the Jacques Lecoq School in France. He died in, I think, 1999. But his school was kind of seminal in influencing so many people, Sasha Baron Cohen, Julie Taymor, uh, all these amazing people that have gone on to have amazing careers, very diverse careers, but have this grounding in the Lecoq method. And Jacques Lecoq himself, they attribute him to the rediscovering the mask. And it was a critical part of his training. I, and a lot of drama schools use mask, but you don't actually see it much on the main stage. And it's sort of relegated to the street theatre or children's theatre. But when I put a mask on, when I did my little two-week workshop with John Bolton, that was my personal epiphany about what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It, it sort of became my calling to put mask on stage in a kind of grown-up form where the power of the mask was that it engaged in the audience imagination. It really brought about that kind of sophisticated childlike imagination. We think of children as as children, as people that don't know much, but their imaginations are so much more sophisticated than ours. 
a five-year-old can play with a piece of paper. You know, you've got that thing where you buy this really expensive gift for a child and they end up playing with the box because <laughs> their imaginations are so sophisticated they can turn that box into a spaceship or a car or, or an island or anything. And as we grow older, that imagination sort of reduces. We have to draw wheels on the box to make it look like a car. And then eventually we have to have an actual car. And so mask for me was that awakening of the imagination. I saw it when anybody put a mask on that they themselves were transformed, but also the audience saw that person completely disappear. And for me as a painfully shy child, that ability to disappear and become someone else, to become someone bigger, to play large in the world, that was a doorway that I readily opened and ran through. So I was invested in creating work that had mask in it initially, and I needed a director. And in New Zealand, there weren't many directors that knew much about mask work. And then Justin fell out of the sky, having just graduated from the John Bolton Theatre School, which, because he's Lecoq trained, has a huge mask component. But Justin didn't really want to be an actor. He wanted to be a director and he wanted to direct original work. And I'd created this little piece, the Christian Zeri that you talked about, as my first kind of solo effort at creating theatre. And we collaborated with that over a year to create the full-length stage play. It was a drama school exercise, you know, it was 20 minutes long. But we sort of worked for a year to make it a full-length piece. And by Jove's, it was a hit. <laughs> You're the first guest on the show to say by Jobs, but I like it. <laughs> well, we toured for a year and it sold out everywhere. It's 25 years old. The company is 25 years old. We'll be performing it this year in Auckland as a sort of a silver anniversary retrospective kind of thing. And it has lasted. And I think part of the power of that is the mask work. The mask work is such an ancient tradition. And people assume because I'm Indian and maybe the your audience can't see, but I'm very much Indian. They assume the mask is from some Indian tradition, but the mask came from an Italian tradition that we turned the characters into Indian characters. Because essentially, the, the commedia is using stock characters. And what I love about it is that people are people. It doesn't matter. You can turn that, that Italian miser into an Indian miser and nobody blinks. So that initial training into having half your face fixed, therefore requiring the rest of your body and your voice and your eyes to completely, I guess, jump into the gap that the mask creates because the mask is a, an amplification of your face, amplification of your nose, of your cheeks, of your brow. You have to be bigger. You have to energetically fill the gap between yourself, your small, real self, and that large presence that is the mask. And it's, it's so exciting because... John Bolton would say that good mask work is 100% trance, 100% technique. So there is a kind of cosmic spooky element of possession when you put a mask on. And that is the holy grail for me. When I feel like I've been taken over by the mask, there's no limit to where I can go and take the audience. So let me ask Justin, since you're the director of that and you understand... Tell the audience a little bit about the mask and the mask work, because these are not fully facial covering masks, and I want them to understand how you use that in changing characters. Well, there's a few things about the mask. So the mask's sort of three quarters. They kind of cut off just uh, below the nose, and they go over the forehead. 
and they have an exaggerated nose and exaggerated cheeks and I make them. So what's lovely about the, the partnership that Jake and I have is that we both think of ourselves as theatre makers. That for us, it's a fairly tangible thing, this making of this ephemeral art form. And the lovely thing about making masks is you can physically make a character. And so the whole process of actually making the masks for Christian's Dairy, Jacob and I would work together closely. I'd get a mould of Jacob's face, I'd put some clay on that and shape that up, and then it's just paper mache, so it's really poor theatre. It's not fancy, fancy stuff. And try something, and if that works, great. And if it doesn't, what's the clue for the next iteration of it? That Okay, the nose is good, but the cheeks need to be bigger. Okay, the nose is good, the cheeks are working, but the forehead's not quite right. You just try things again and again, which is how you make theatre. It was sort of like auditioning, wasn't it? <laughs> well, I can imagine that the mask sometimes helps lay the pipe for the character, meaning if you have a very nosy character and the nose is very large, it helps not so much stereotype as a quick definition for one person playing multiple characters, then that character with bigger ears tells us something. Totally. Absolutely. You know, you have characters that are driven by different senses, by the nose, and they're curious. There are characters who might be driven by the sense of hearing. So we once had a character who was blind. Rather than asking them to play blind, we asked them to play the sense of hearing and the sense of smell. Because blind people don't play, I can't see. <laughs> they play, I have to listen really carefully. And I have to use my other senses. So the thing about the mask is it helps to take you away from a world of psychology and into a far more tangible world, which is what we live in as humans. We are constantly in touch with our senses and using our senses. And we're constantly reading how other people are using their bodies. So there's no psychology in mask work. The mask is hungry. The mask wants sex, the mask wants food, the mask wants money. They're really basic human desires, and the mask sets about going to get those things, and that becomes the drama. <laughs> Will I have sex? Will I eat today? Will I be able to pay my rent? That's the world of the commedia, the little concerns of the little person. So the mask, it becomes the heart of the whole drama. It's actor-centered, because it all grows out of that. I would make the masks, we'd audition them, we'd find a character that we liked. And then when you've got that character and we do improvisation and muck around and find that character's voice and the way the character holds their body and the way they see the world, because in a mask, you're literally looking through some eyes to see the world in a particular way. Well, then you've got the character's voice. So then you can write your script with that voice really well formed. So that's sort of become one of the basis for how we make something. The making of the characters is three-dimensional with the mask, and then the script is the recording of that three-dimensional thing. I see. And then additionally, Jacob, you're taking on maybe posture and body positions and things that are also helping us define the age of the character or the gender or any of that. Because I noticed in watching some of the clips on the website that you'll take a, just a small gesture of twirling the hair or doing something that allows us immediately to know who's talking. That's right. I mean, if I'm playing multiple characters, like I played Guru Chai, plays 17 characters. And so there's a family of seven sisters and they have to be delineated, each sister individually. And their dialogue might be a word or a sentence. All six are talking. 
and you get a snapshot of each sister and you have to delineate their weight. Their eyelines will change as they talk to each other. And that's working closely with Justin. With mask work, we really work with mirrors because the key component is the audience. And so Justin acts as my audience all the time, figuring out, am I confused here where you are looking? And which character was which at that moment? You need to make that stronger. That coaching from the sideline is the way we continually operate. And I just want to add that for me, I talk about the mask work as outside in. So with my drama school training, we didn't actually get taught mask. The New Zealand drama school at the time I was going through, there wasn't a, a mask component. And so we got introduced to a bunch of acting methodology like Stanislavski and Alfred, Mike Alfred's technique and all of these things. They, they seem to come from an inside out. You find a truthful emotion and you bring it outwards, which I found kind of exhausting because relying on that real life childhood trauma and bringing it out every night is ultimately dilutes it. And then you start straining to make that happen. But when you put a mask on, because you're driven by that big nose, by that physical presence, you still do get psychology. That curiosity does arrive in your head, but you can repeat it night after night and it'll be slightly different because you're driven by this external thing. And maybe not as emotionally intense. You're not digging up that childhood trauma as the core. But the funny thing is it's incredibly emotionally intense for the audience because for me, it's like we have, the mask is utterly reliant on the audience to know what it's thinking. So with naturalistic acting, I find often with actors who have that kind of training, feel very pleased with themselves when they have a truthful emotion and cry or when they're working with a scene partner and there's that moment between them that is so truthful. But it's in the theatre, if the audience can't see it, it's completely wasted. So the mask is always checking in with the audience, is looking out to the audience, and the audience becomes their conscience in a way. And when the audience sees them, sees their eyes crying, I think they are far more moved because it's not just for them. It's not just for the character. The character is sharing their humanity with the audience. And another thing John would say was the more you conceal, the more you reveal. So when you put a mask on, there's that element of concealing, but the eyes have to be utterly truthful and utterly committed to what they're feeling. And the beautiful thing about a mask is what they're feeling. If in a naturalistic scene that you break up with your girlfriend and you're incredibly sad and you look with a quivering lip into the middle distance. Well, the mask will have all of that, but they will bash the phone that has just had their last phone call into smithereens and they will pulverize it and then they will make it into a cake and then they will eat it. And that will seem ridiculous, but if the mask is utterly inhabiting the truth of that, it will become far more poetic and moving for an audience to see that because they'll still be crying but what they're expressing is just far bigger. What Jake's just described is a way of thinking about the serious laugh. That eating the telephone that your girlfriend's just broken up on you is the serious laugh. It's ridiculous, it's absurd, but we utterly connect with it as humans. We really feel it. Just in relation to what Jake was talking about, the mask actually reveals, it doesn't conceal. A lot of actors try and communicate stuff by twitching their eyes and their faces and things like that. They do a lot of facial gymnastics and nothing's happening below the neck. 
nothing's happening in the breath, nothing's happening in the body. One of the things about mass training is it teaches you the power of observation. Take a walk down the street any day and you'll see the most extreme physical things going on in the way people walk, people leaning back, people leaning forward, people with strange ways of walking, people in extreme situations in bus stops having arguments. It's big, life is big, but for some reason people want to make it smaller on the stage. <laughs> so the mask is a way of making it bigger. And that stuff that Jake's talking about in terms of shifting the posture and those things, that's training. It's like actually getting in a room and going, okay, what is the breath of this? What is the physical shape of this? And then if you can repeat that physical shape, if you can repeat the breath of grief, you don't have to do the psychology of grief. You do the breath of grief. The audience reads that. And then the psychological response for the actor comes after the breath. It doesn't come first. It's the other way around. So it's just to say none of this is accidental. It's like Krishnan's dairy. People go, oh, is it improvised? Because it looks so lifelike. But every single move in that show is choreographed. But Jake can repeat it again and again because he understands the life inside each of those gestures. It's beautifully staged. I recall there being a baby on the counter that was needing to be tended to. I know it's just a doll, but with sound effects and a sound effects of a cash register, everything came to life. And I guess that's a salute to both of you and your ability to use theater and drama to not just tell a story, but to transport people to the location and the emotion that they need to have in the experience of the story. Yeah, but I, I also salute you, Pat, because it was your imagination that made it happen. And that's what the audience, I feel, comes to the theater to see. That's what we have over film and television. The imaginative work that they have to do, and the skill is to make it not feel like work, is that they are filling in all of those unseen things, the, the cash register that is mined, you know, the, the, the customers that I'm interacting with, there will be 300 different filters on what they're seeing. And that's their active imagination at work. That's the nourishment that comes from going to the theater. Well, I, on behalf of the whole audience, I accept this award of having helped. <laughs> <laughs> that's very generous of you, Jacob, but I really didn't do anything, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. And I have been thinking about it for years. So it resonates. That's my point. Now, just briefly to return to the mask talk, only because the world has been behind masks for two years in a different way. They've had the lower part of their face, their expression, their smile covered. And so they know a little bit more how important the eyes are required to communicate, but a lot more hand gestures, a lot more hellos, a lot more head nods, things that were finding another way to communicate friendliness or being upset. So in a strange way, the entire world is getting a pandemic clinic on masks, but in a little different way. But I think it does make them appreciate the work that you do. The mask does a certain amount of work, but the body, really the eyes and the soul and everything else is where the heart comes from. And so many of the characters that you play, Jacob, it's the human condition at the center of a bigger story. You guys are fantastic at putting together a bigger global story, and within it, you've got a human story. It's so personalized that we can go on the journey without worrying about the whole world collapsing. We're just worried about, does this person survive, and how do they feel at the end of this journey? That's right. I think that's true. 
the core of all of the work is relationship. I think theatre does relationship really well. And so we're always looking for our heroes to be the common person, the, the little person, and, and they're put in a situation where they have to wrestle with their own flaws to, to overcome something and, and transform over the course of the evening. And I think the audiences always recognise that journey in themselves. That's always the trick to find the ache of the story, the thing that they're going to to really care about and empathise with. And that's where the mask is great because initially you laugh at the character because there is a cartooniness about it. And there's a stereotype there that's a given with the mask. And so we can comfortably sit back and laugh at the thing. And then as you take them through the story, you start to walk in their shoes a bit and then you laugh with them. And by the end, hopefully you're crying and you're totally empathising and you, you get who they are. And they are you. That's the, the journey. In context of what you just said, let's talk about your current work, which is called Paradise or the Impermanence of Ice Cream. And it's about the fleeting existence of love, life, and ice cream. So we know that it has bigger themes and smaller themes. But I just took a quick glance at some of the materials and a little trailer that you had. And I want to know where the inspiration came from, Justin for this particular work. And also maybe you can guide the audience a little bit on how it's what we do while we're still here on Earth alive. The inspiration for this really came from a trip that Jacob and I took to Mumbai, to Bombay. And we were there working on another project, but while we're in Mumbai, uh, the city just did its magic on us. It's this most incredible, vibrant, alive city with all of these people living in what I consider quite extreme situations that I'd find deeply challenging, but many of them eternally optimistic and hopeful. <laughs> and we just met some fantastic kind of people while we were there. And we discovered this kind of amazing story about India's disappearing vultures. So India once had millions and millions of vultures and over you know a couple of decades, they disappeared. And there's just a huge mystery about where they disappeared. And we discovered the story about the Parsi community who have this, these funeral rites where they lay their dead bodies out and the vultures come and they clean the flesh off the bones, which for me initially was quite horrific. I go, what? what's that about from my kind of context? And then when you find out about it, you go, you find it's incredibly ecologically sound. And absolutely, the vultures are, the vultures are these ugly, ugly creatures that I always thought were kind of symbols of death and something awful to be feared and loathed, that do this most beautiful thing for the earth. They are the waste collectors of the earth. Their stomachs are full of acid. And so when they pick the flesh off a carcass that would kill anybody else, this rotting carcass, kill any other animal, they get rid of the flesh, but they also wipe out disease. So this loathsome creature... <laughs> that to me in the West is the symbol of death, is revered in India and by particular communities because they see what it does. And it does this thing for the world that most of us don't recognize. And I go, well, that's a beautiful story. So those things were rattling around in us. And I'd also been reading this book by Ernst Becker called The Denial of Death, which is about how our fear of our mortality and our inability to accept we're mortal makes humans do all sorts of weird and crazy things. 
because I was trying to make sense of Donald Trump at the time. So <laughs> I had to find answers somewhere. And funnily enough, there's a whole lot about our fear of death, looking for strong leaders and protect us from immortality and things like that. There's something very deeply true about all of this. So these things are all rattling around in us as we're hanging out and eating food and experiencing Mumbai. And we're coming back from Mumbai and we stop off in Singapore and we're just walking around in Singapore and we walk past a, a funny old travel agent store and it's, and it's called Paradise Tours. And I went, that's a great name for a, for a show. Let's call this show Paradise Tours. And somehow off that, Jake and I end up spending a couple of hours just talking about what this show might be, sparked by that. So our inspiration comes from a whole bunch of things, you know. It comes from the hard work of reading and looking and trying to find answers for life. And it comes from lived experience and being out in the world and meeting people and doing different things. So all of those things come together. And when I think when you do it, we do a good show. All of those processes have to be part of the inspiration and the source. It doesn't come from one place. It's like innovation, as they say, it's really it's about taking two things that never been put together before and putting them together. It's kind of that simple. And isn't the focus of the inevitability of death something that over the last couple of years, I mean, things were happening everywhere where you go, what is my purpose? What is my passion? How do I say what I have to say before I go? It feels like death being a part of the current project is that we've faced so much announcements of it around us all the last few years. Yeah, totally. And some people will come to terms with their mortality and it'll make them more compassionate human beings. And other people will look for things to take away their fear of mortality and make them feel safe, which is like a powerful leader, which is hatred of others, because that stops them having to confront that terrible truth. But that's part of what you were reading in that book, right? Totally. It, it sort of made a lot of sense. And the things that I see going on in the world today ripple on from the pandemic, and they ripple on from the fact that we humans don't like the fact that we're going to die. <laughs> When you're playing that part, Jacob, I noticed that it's called a solo show because you're playing all these eight parts, but you're interacting with a puppeteer that's playing the vulture that is a, another character and a very strong relationship. So tell me what that feels like on stage and just the relationship between you and the vulture. That was a nightmare. <laughs> you have John Coddington, who's an award-winning puppeteer. He's made this puppet that is a life-sized vulture that is a complete scene stealer. If it's ever on stage with you, you, you have not got a hope of the audience looking at what you're doing or listening to what you're saying. I hate the thing. <laughs> but, but it's an extraordinary provocation because we actually did start with Paradise Tours and the idea of this character that was a tour guide and trying to sell the audience a, a trip to Mumbai. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. <laughs> And tourism became not such a great thing and not such a believable sell. We wrote a whole first draft of this, this show based on this premise of a tour guide and then binned it, an entire script, binned it and started again. And Justin had this sort of, what was it, a dream? I don't know. Where, where did that idea come from? I can't even remember how it came to me now. This idea of a guy waking up in a room alone with a vulture. So... We, the audience, don't know what's going on. He doesn't get, know what's going on. So 
this idea of a storyteller that's not in charge of the story that he's telling was a part of the provocation of the work. And he's slowly figuring things out. And then he's being flipped back to when he was a young man in Mumbai and we're getting the backstory of how he came to this place. So there's two stories going on at the same time, the story of his past and the story of this limbo that he's in and this strange creature. But yeah, the puppet is a close cousin of the mask. It, it requires the audience to do that same imaginative work because it's although the, John does this incredible job of breathing life into this inanimate object it's not feathers and uh, realistic it's, it's made of cane it's made of muslin fabric and it looks kind of skeletal so it has a sort of spirit guide kind of essence to it when it's in this limbo state that the character's in but when it flips back it's the same puppet but then it becomes a feral real vulture and to see the skill with which he makes that happen and then see the audience recognize the different birds within the same bird, it's the same thing as the mask. His skill is making that happen and their imagination is filling it in. And then I have to try and claim back my space <laughs> by holding the story. We had a writer and story guru teacher on Brian McDonald who refers to that moment as the land of the dead, where you're going somewhere to learn something so that you can come back and it's a survival skill. So the vulture is like one of the ultimate symbols of the land of the dead. It seems that that reminds us that we're facing something, whether it's actual death or prison or some other trauma, that that's the place you have to go to learn the lesson. Yeah. And I would say it's a symbol of transformation and transmutation, which is what death really is. Things have to die in order for things to be reborn. We have to let go of old ideas. They have to die so that new things can come. And so death is always in drama. Without death, there's no drama. I noticed there was projection in this show. Do you find the advancement of that scenic design now with the advent of projection allows you to do more or go more places? Or do you feel like that's overpainting the picture? Oh, man, this is the first time I feel like we've done something where we've been able to use that new technology in a way that's okay. I've tried a few times before, and the fight between the digital image and the live is just extremely difficult. And so, funnily enough, what made this work was that we used the fancy $15,000 projector as a slide projector and made slides, old school slides, to stick in front of it, basically. <laughs> and that's why it worked in the theatre. For me, those old forms of theatre and reinventing them is a lot what we're about, puppetry, mask. So the video is working because we're using it like an old art form. It's always to have imagery, which means the scene changes, but it's not a movie that's playing per se other than maybe a shadow entering or something like that. Yeah, and it has some movement in it, but again, when we did the movement, we did it analog. We painted something, we stuck it on a, a platter and we spun it round and round and we filmed that, rather than some digital artist sitting there and doing it, which would have cost tens of thousands of dollars and taken them hours and wouldn't have looked as good. There's just something about the joy of the analog that's, that's made for theatre. Well, you guys have taken these works internationally around the world to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I know that you, Jacob, won a Edinburgh Fringe First 
award for one of your productions there. I guess for the listener, if one of you can tell us a little bit about what that energy and environment and experience of Edinburgh Fringe Festival is, because I know that it's an extraordinary gathering, but I think most people haven't made that journey. Oh, when did we go there first, Justin? It was 1999, I think. And so 1,300 shows opened on opening night in Edinburgh. On that opening night, the listings for the shows was sort of like a small telephone directory. And it's an extraordinarily neurotic place for an actor to be, to be competing amongst all of that noise. Because you've got to understand, it's not just the Fringe Festival that's happening. There's also the Arts Festival at the same time. There's a Book Festival. There was a Jazz Festival and a Film Festival all going at the same time <laughs> for one month. It's madness. All the Edinburghians leave and rent out their houses for a huge rent. <laughs> and we, we stayed there for the month. But of course, Christian's Dairy was the play that we took there. And the big deal is to get a reviewer. Because, of course, if you're a Joe Public going to see a show, how are you going to choose amongst all of that noise? You have to look at the review. So the review becomes incredibly important. And I think they bring in 40 reviewers to try and cover it all. But they're not going to get to the, all of them. So you're going to sink if you don't get a review. And we happened to get a review on our opening Friday. So the paper, the Scotsman, that the reviews come out, and they have a review supplement <laughs> within the paper So because they have so many shows that they try to cover. The paper comes out at 2 in the morning. We got a five-star review, and on the front page of the review supplement with a colour photo of our play, Christian's Dairy, it was a five-star review. It was the lead story on the play. That paper came out at 2 a.m. By midday, the whole season was sold out. Four-week season was sold out. That was the power of that review. So we were floating around on air, basically. We conquered Edinburgh. And looking back, we didn't know how good we had it. <laughs> because that was our first experience of it. And it was a joy. And I saw 32 shows in that month that I was there because I was working nights, so I could... The shows go from midday right up to midnight. So it was a great experience for me. Yeah, and I think we learned something about audiences there as well because that first show where we got the great review, we came down from that show going, they hated it. Like we'd been doing this show in New Zealand and we were used to a certain response from audiences. You know, this is the place where they laugh and this is the place where they go, ooh, and they go, ah. This was Scotland, man. There was none of that because they're Scottish and they don't say shit. <laughs> they play their cards really close to their chests. So there's nothing coming back until the end when they just exploded into all this applause. And we went, oh, okay, maybe it's all right. So we just found something about, you know, audiences will respond with their national characteristic. And you can't judge the audience. You can't demand something of the audience. You just got to do your thing. I know that when I was doing stand-up comedy and I would have an international audience, I'd noticed that the Japanese people would not necessarily applaud or anything, but they didn't want to interrupt. But I didn't know that. I was just like, this is the death of a thousand deaths. And then at the end, they clap, they stand. And afterwards they say, it was great. It's like, why didn't you let me know as we were? Oh, well, we didn't want to disturb you. Where were you? Yeah. Well, you guys use a hybrid though. You use a lot of Western theatrical traditions as well as 
smoothly blending it with the Eastern flavor. So it must do okay when you travel. It must be something that it's a mysterious thing, but it feels to me like the character work and the storytelling and all of that is universally human. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we're called Indian Inc. And so there's definitely a strong perspective that comes from my cultural lens. But essentially, all the work are telling human stories. I, I struggle to know what an Indian theme is. <laughs> People have labeled things as Indian themes, but stuff about family, about home, about identity, all of these things are, are human. And always, always the work centers on our humanity. We celebrate our difference and there will be cultural things that people will find intriguing. But uh, really it's about we're not that different. You've done quite a few works together, though. How many uh, plays have you written together and presented together? It's uh, It'll be 11 this year because we've got a brand new work in development that should have a development season in September. So it'll be number 11. I see on the website the various titles. When they're done, do you move on or do the productions? You've mentioned one is coming back as sort of a, a reunion or a uh, sort of a celebration as an anniversary. But do they typically then get put away for good? No, nothing's put away for good. If the opportunity comes, then we'll bring things back. But our idea is to to spend a lot of time making something, investing a lot in it up front, and then letting it, hoping that it's going to have a long life. They don't always, because not everything works, or works as well as it needs to. But some of the works keep coming out years and years later. And sometimes they might sit there in the, in the box for a long time, and then we'll go, oh yeah, it's time to bring them out. And the reason why it's right to bring them out will be something to do with what's going on in the world that makes it a right time to do it. And sometimes it's just down to also the availability of the team to do it because artists move on and do different things and to remount them becomes quite a biggie. But we've done that. We did one show, A Pickle King, which we remounted five or six years later with a different cast. And one of the shifts we made was it was this love story between a man and a woman. It became a love story between two women which became part of the rationale for remounting it and giving it something fresh. So, yeah, things come back. Have they ever been captured in a form that it can be watched in television or film form, or do you hope for that, or that's not something in your interest? We are working on an adaptation of Christian's Daring to a film for, like, years, like many people have, and film is just such a frustrating, ephemeral thing. It's nearly been made two times, the funding's been there and then it's just fallen over at the last minute because of the lack of availability of somebody. And that just seems to be the way that film rolls. And I think it's getting harder and harder to get films up. So I don't know. We haven't given up on it. We'll keep working away. On our list is to do another pass of that film script this year. Great. Well, I got to tell you, people who don't know your acting ability, Jacob, have you done television and film work in other parts of the world or just in your area? The irony is that part of the practical thing of starting a theatre company was to give myself work. As an Indian actor in New Zealand, I was the first Indian graduate from the National Drama School. They, they assured me as I got my degree and left the door, the world's moving towards colorblind casting, you'll be fine. And then I get out there and it's tumbleweed, the phone isn't ringing off the hook. And then the terrible thing is that you get cast in something and I'm always playing a doctor. I'm always playing the same doctor, a saint, because the person who's writing that part cannot take the gamble of making me bad because they are not Indian and therefore that would be seen as racist. So I'm always made into this 
awful, non-interesting character with no dimensions. So with the theatre, I have control over that. And so Justin and I write interesting characters. And I've written an Indian doctor, but he was interesting. <laughs> um, so the irony of that, of creating a company that gives me work, is sometimes I have to turn work down. My profile gets raised with the theatre I do. I get offered work, but I, I'm often not available because I have to tend to my own thing first. There was a long window saying, uh, I've done a little bit of film and television. Well, let me just state, in case anybody's listening other places, you're available for major roles that have a little bit more meat on the bone. Yes, please. Yeah. You're a vulture that can take the meat off that bone. <laughs> I'd yeah, I would love to do more. The reason I say it, or I'm actually trying to amplify the idea, is that I saw actors on Broadway that were only Broadway actors, and then after production after production, somebody from film would discover them, and now they're suddenly showing up in other things. And I think this is a craftsman that really deserves this, these characters and these roles, and not an incidental person who lays a little piece of exposition out or tells people their x-rays are fine, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which seems like a quick nod to, well, we got an Indian guy in this thing. We don't want that performative use of that. And I think when I see a show like Hamilton, where Lin-Manuel Miranda was so dutiful about saying, the story will carry, the music will carry. He had to have that singular vision of telling the story in the way that he did to open the doors to even the fact that young kids are singing these songs and in hip hop and in learning about all of this stuff is because of his dedication to the goal of it. So, I mean, I wouldn't stop what you're doing there in your theater company, but I think the minute that somebody sees you do something more significant, you're going to be a little too busy for everybody. This probably gets quoted all the time, but I love Terence Mann, who said, I'm paraphrasing, but TV will make you rich, film will make you famous, theater will make you good. Ah, I like that. I feel that's true. You know, if you see a good stage actor, they will translate the film, but not necessarily the other way around because there's a bit of craft involved in, in that connection with 400 people. And staying in character and on story for the whole ride, I always say that's a runaway stagecoach for the actor. They have got to stay on that thing and make it up because the director checks out. Everybody's gone when it's time to face the audience. And so an actor who only trains in film and television, who spends breaks in the trailer and goes to the catering and has another bagel, they cannot sustain a role necessarily or have the stamina for seven or eight shows a week. And those performances need to be consistent because if it stinks on day two, the word of mouth doesn't get to day seven. Yeah, but I mean, kudos to my film buddies <laughs> because I've been on a film set and it can bore the crap out of me in terms of how long do we have to spend filming somebody drinking a glass of water to actually hold your performance over split scenes where you're angry first but you don't get the build to be on that's a skill set as well which i admire well is there anything that either of you can offer to our listener as inspiration or insight to theater as a lifestyle the thing i was thinking about Pat coming into this was thinking how how much the kind of creativity that we do is driven by collaboration and what a joy that is and that that's one of the things that theatre does really well and actually as a life skill and for things that people use in their lives you've got to collaborate 
if I imagine myself being creative on my own, the solo artist sitting some in some isolated room, I think it would be impossible for me. The joy of what I do is the collaboration I have with Jake. Phone a friend. I've had this great idea. Share it with them. I'm stuck. I can reach out. And sometimes the things that come back, we often talk about this as well. It's like there can be a tendency to try and censor yourself and only put a good idea out. But the amazing thing that happens when you just start a conversation like we're having now and somebody says something absurd or not that good, but it sparks something else off in you that goes somewhere else. And so the beauty of collaboration, the joy of mistakes and the randomness and not needing to be good all the time is just sort of essential to the whole process of being able to make things. People get too hung up about being good at it. Just kind of got to go on the journey and try and find stuff. And if you can go with some other people, it's way more fun. Jacob, I know that one-man show cast parties can be pretty dull, but do you have something to add? I often get asked, what do you want the audience to take away from this show? And I was thinking about that lately, lately in terms of this current climate that we're in. And I sadly made a career on mass gathering. <laughs> and we live in a world now where that is a place of fear. So in this little international tour, the houses have been pretty small. You can still sense the fear of people gathering together in a room. And so what I want for people to take away is that it was worth it, that they come to a show and they made that effort and it was kind of life-threatening. <laughs> and they go away and was actually worth it and I've experienced that in the theatre it is the most precious thing and now when I go out on stage every time I feel the preciousness of it and you want to make it worth it because what people don't understand that has been missing is the community experience of feeling other people laughing and crying and feeling and applauding without prompting something very strange about that moment of community where you have an aha, oh, we're all so much more alike than I realized. That's right. That was an epiphany to me as well, that you're not an audience as soon as you sit down. You're actually an audience only at the end. You come in as strangers, and then you create the community that makes you an audience over the course of the story. So you leave different. You leave connected in some way of having experienced this thing together. And of course, the theater is never the same, and each night is different. What's interesting about the audience, and people are mistaken by watching, let's say, a movie, is that it takes theater elements and it makes this experience, but the actors aren't live on there. So there's not a communication between the audience and the actor. And also, if you start to watch it on your phone or you start to binge watch it, you're getting further and further from people. And while you're taking the story in, you're not really taking that human condition part where... When I hear someone else in a theater cry, it's transferable. That emotion is something like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how deep this is or what this means. And I do think we get further from it because things like film and television, where the money is, there was a time when theater was the king. It was out front, let's say Shakespearean time, whatever. But then when they began to dissect the script, when they start to look at it as literature and teach it as the printed page, they took the actors out of the picture for a period. So theater's always underneath the heartbeat of it. But I think that the audience starts to think, oh, I'm satisfied by this 
experience of a movie until they go back to the theater. That's the moment when it's done well that they realize there's nothing like it. When they go to a concert and the music makes everybody feel something or sing something, we go, oh, which is ritual in a way. That's a dance around the campfire in some ways. So it is primal, I think. And I don't know who said it, but the stage space has two rules. Anything can happen and something must happen. That's how we know that was an event as opposed to something else. So, boy, something has happened today. Again, I've been very much looking forward to talking to the two of you. I salute your masterful storytelling, impeccable comic timing, the performances that you put on, and the tales of epic proportion. I hope that we can get you into the States more frequently and get more people to see the work. I will personally host an event in Austin if I can get you to come here. And I would now encourage the listener to go to Indian Inc., .co.nz, where you can see the titles and the work and clips of trailers. Thank you both for being my guest today. That was lovely. Thanks, Pat. Really, it was really great. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping